you that you're going to die today. You know, it was funny because Maria and I had not planned that. My sermon, if you weren't here two weeks ago, was kind of a conflation with Ash Wednesday, and I started out by saying, you're going to die? And then, of course, she came in saying the very same thing with her own twist, and I heard it deeper that Bill said, just stop it already. (laughs) This Lenten stuff is getting out of control. Well, I'm not going to tell you that you're going to die today, but we have an equally daunting task, as someone said at Free For All, we're facing the mean Jesus. I think it is one of those stories that most of us sort of heard as a child and with the philanograph and and sort of equally sort of in awe and sort of scared of Jesus at the same time. Who is this sort of, does this have a personality disorder, this Jesus? Once I knew him as the meek and mild and now the one overturning these tables. So let's look a little bit of a little bit of a background. First of all, it's fascinating that in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all place this incident happening at the end of Jesus' public ministry, right before as he's going into Jerusalem, and sort of the impetus for crucifying him, that he would have the audacity to do this. Well, John has a totally different agenda in setting this at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So let's look at it a little bit. Jesus is approaching the temple near the time of the Passover, which was a time of the Jews of celebrating, as we just heard, this momentous occasion of being set free from the Egyptians when they were enslaved for hundreds of years. And so to commemorate their freedom from bondage and enslavement, they celebrate the Passover. So imagine Jesus walking into the temple, or really on the outside of it, and seeing a mockery of the Passover, ironically, in that people are taking advantage of one another and enslaving each other. But John also has a different task at hand. Unlike, again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, if you go back, you'll notice that famous phrase that they quote when Jesus says, you den of robbers. Remember that? John doesn't say that here. Apparently, his task is not so much to highlight the defrauding of the poor as something else that's taking place. And a little bit of background for those of you who maybe aren't familiar with what the sacrificial system was, maybe a little refresher. So back in the Old Testament, starting with Abraham, there was a sacrifice made. Jesus, or God, as in Yahweh God, said that a sacrifice must be made for sin, that sin mattered, and that there had to be a cost for sin. And it would be painful. And so later, fast forward to Moses, you have the sacrificial system that began. And they would sacrifice an unblemished animal, a lamb typically, or a dove for those who were poor. 
to show that something has paid the price for their sin. So Jesus walks up this time, right before Passover, seeing the exchange and seeing these animals and the purchases. And notice what John says. He says, if you look in verse 16, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. A marketplace. So he is telling these devout Jews who have to have a marketplace to exchange the currency that they brought for the temple tax. He's saying by the very nature that he's saying to stop having this marketplace, he's driving, or John's agenda is driving at the fact that Jesus is up to something different. Because they had to have the marketplace. So Jesus, by saying, get rid of this, this is not what this is about, is inaugurating a new time when Jesus would be the end of the sacrificial system. This is powerful stuff. This would be the end of buying and selling, and this is a new way of relating to God. I love I love the dialogue in these things. And, the, and John, again, it's so neat to go and sort of compare and see the differences. I think Jesus, of course, is outraged and has begun, in, in my imagination, to create quite a stir. In fact, as I see it, after he's loudly declaring to stop making this a marketplace, I think there was an audible hush that just fell over the temple. I don't think you could hear a moo or a bat or a coo at all. It's like the animals knew too. The whole place was silent. This was serious. And people were jolted into attention. So much so that these disciples could remember their scripture memory verse from Psalms. Zeal for his house will consume me. Somehow, I think even the best of them couldn't keep their eyes off. Have you ever been sort of in a grocery store and someone just really gets ticked off? I think it's embarrassing, right? So the checkout person is sort of trying to keep their cool and they're I saw, I witnessed this the other day, this man was just, there was a discrepancy in price. And instead of sort of a logical conversation about this, I mean, he, he gets irate, starts throwing things back into the cart, he says, I'm not paying for it. And of course, all of the people around him, <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> you know, you're on, you, want, you wish that you could just sort of pretend that you're reading the people right in front of you. But you are now part of this community event taking place. This event in the temple was not just Jesus in one corner and the religious authorities in the other. This is the whole community is taking note. So they're really eager to see what the eyes are now turning to the Jewish authorities. What are they going to say? And I find it fascinating. 
they say. In fact, I thought they would be yelling around and picking things up and throwing them back like a good bar fight. Tit for tat, you punch, I punch. But they don't. They ask a question. Who does that? Who does that? And it's a strange question. Look at it. What sign can you show us for having the authority to do this? What proof do you have to accept these tables as such? Whose authority, under which, or whose jurisdiction? And if Jesus was snarky, I think he would have said, Right back at you. What sign do you have to dishonor me and my father's house into a marketplace, replacing worship for capitalist enterprises? But Jesus doesn't choose to be snarky in this moment. In fact, he replies with sort of a riddle that Lisa talked about, saying, dismantle this temple three days and I'll rebuild it. What sign can you show me? This haunting question of the religious authority stares me in the face. Isn't this the question we all ask of God at various times in our life? What sign? Which, by the way, in John's gospel, the word sign is similar to the synoptic gospel's use of miracle. So, sign, miracle. Don't we do that? God, show me a miracle. Show me a sign that you were there. God, show me that you have a right to unravel all of my preconceptions here. Show me a sign that you have the right to disrupt my little life. Show me a sign that you can turn over the tables of my well-built financial security. Wow, we've all asked the question, show me a sign, show me a sign. In this Lenten season, when God is ripping things off our chest of drawers left and right and pulling off our security blanket, we yell out to God the very same question, what do you think you're doing? What jurisdiction? Whose authority? And it sort of sounds funny when I, re- when I replay that as if the creation is demanding of the creator. God says, ultimately, in John's gospel, I care about something different than sacrifice. I care about something more than you exchanging monies and making rituals. I care more than a a well-oiled machine happening. Rather, I even want something more than a faithful temple goer. I want a follower. I want a disciple. Like the Kushner quote at the front of your worship guide, it says, only in the wilderness, Lenten season, when everything is removed 
that we're finally able to focus. I don't know what it is, but until those distractions are removed, we don't focus. We don't remember what's important. I love it. He says, in the wilderness, your possessions can't surround you. In the wilderness, your preconceptions cannot protect you. Your logic can't promise you the future. Your guilt can't hold you in the past. And there's this fascinating line he moves to. He says, you're left alone each day with an immediacy that astonishes, chastens, and exalts. And you see the world as if for the first time. Have you been in those moments where what you thought was supposed to be a wasteland ended up being an oasis? Of seeing the world for the first time? I think, really, that the religious authorities, when Jesus turned over the money tables and made this whip, you know, we don't even know what that was like. If he's like pulling fabric off, tying knots, I don't know. But it was causing the scene, disruption erupts. And yet, in that moment, I wonder if the religious authorities caught a glimpse of the world for the first time. And then they ignored it. It was as if they said, yes! about this and we're thinking about that and 
the call of this passage to me, and really when I sift my calling, my goal is not to make you good churchgoers. It's to make you good Jesus followers. I had some help from a fellow commentary theologian who reminded me of this awesome story in C.S. Lewis's Narnia series and the third one, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. You remember that one. And, and this story, of course, is these children come from this war-torn London and go into this magical world of Narnia. And Aslan the lion is is the, the Christ figure. Have we, do, do y'all know what I'm talking about? Okay, so I don't need to sort of retell the whole summary, but... In the third one, anyway, Aslan tells Lucy and Edmund that they won't see him in Narnia anymore. You're not going to get to come in Narnia and see me. And Lucy is just completely distraught at this. And David Luce, who's retelling this, says, but he reassures her that she will see him in her own world. And when she is surprised that Aslan is present in her world, he tells her that the whole reason for bringing her to Narnia for a time was so that coming to know him well here in Narnia, she would recognize him there more easily. Sometimes we act like we've domesticated Jesus in the church. Luce goes on to say, I'm not sure how many of our people see church that way. Or more accurately, I'm not sure they see their homes, their places of work, their school, and other parts of their lives as places where God is present. This holy ground that Moses is standing on. Let alone at work. God at work through you for the sake of the world. He goes on to say, David Miller... At the beginning of his book, God at Work, any of you read that? He describes an exercise he does with a group of clergy. This is quite something. He says, how many of you, Miller asked, at the beginning of a new school year recognize the students or teachers and say a blessing or prayer? A lot of the hands go up of the clergy. Then he says, how many of you have a blessing for the deacon body or an installation? And all the hands go up. What about a mission trip? A blessing for those that go on the mission trip. All the hands go up. And by this time, of course, the response is predictable, as most of the hands are raised. And then there's one more question Miller asked. He says, how many of you, talking to clergy, come late March or early April, Invite all of our certified public accountants to stand and pray for them, knowing that for the next several weeks they will work 70 hours or more and that their labor keeps our tax systems and government functioning. And now no hands are raised. He says, do you see what I mean? By regularly emphasizing the roles we play at church, we unintentionally undervalue all the other roles of our lives and lift up church as the one place where we meet God and live our religious lives in this way. Undermining the, the insight that John has here, that confession that God is out 
in the world waiting for us to partner with God, which is exactly what Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's new logo is all about. What are the ways in which we partner with God to renew the world? That God is already out there. So practically, how do we do this? How do we become Jesus followers versus just good churchgoers that typically just demand signs, right? Well, first, we have to be reminded of that Lenten truth. The task of humility, the the daily task of dying to self. We must realize that the Lenten truth is we don't have any rights or possessions or leverage that we can stand on or utilize. The truth is there's no sign or miracle that Jesus could ever show us that would be good enough. And that's why we need this wilderness season. See reality as it really is. I guess it's, in a way, it's sort of like a sign to show us what we really need. To show us what we really depend on. To show us what our idols are. What our mind always goes to. What our body always longs for. In the wilderness, we know. And we're reminded in this place that the way of being a Jesus follower requires practice. It requires spiritual disciplines, requires the things that you've known all along, prayer and scripture and praying for others, but also maybe ones that we've forgotten, like practicing forgiveness or listening to God in times of silence. Taking time this Lenten season when everything is a hustle and a bustle because, you know, spring's approaching, to actually take time to, to scale back a little bit and realize what you really need and where your allegiances really are. You know, we Christians are sign makers, aren't we? We love our signs. Do we not? I've told you about my blood-bought, Bible-toting, scripture-quoting t-shirt. That was a sign I had for a long time. Oh, yes. We love our signs. Perhaps because we wear our signs to remind us of who we are or because we're forgetful people. Like the crosses we wear around our neck, which I have many beautiful ones, not many bloody ones. Or the Christian fish or the clerical collar or the clerical robe. In the book that we're doing in our Linton group, Honoring the Body, Stephanie Paulsell, the writer, talks about a young woman who'd grown up in the Amish community 
who had given up her Amish garb after graduation from college and became part of the more liberal Mennonite church. And she preached a sermon asking this question. Now that I don't wear clothing that marks me as a member of a Christian community, is there anything about me that says I have been with Jesus? Friends, I think it's so interesting that at any moment, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit could come upon us, turning the tables and saying, what sign do you have to show us? But God doesn't do that. John's Gospel, as we read further, offers grace upon grace to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's all you need in the wilderness is the way. And Jesus, opening, gracious, says, come, follow me. I care far more about you than being good churchgoers and want power.